This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. My name is David Moten. I am the author of Mindframe, and I am the narrator of all the chapters. With me, as always, is my producer and my partner in crime, Brent Van Tassel. We are a Podbelly original, and you can find out more about podcasting and find a great network of podcasts by going to podbelly.com. And also, if you like what you listen to, you can support us at patreon.com backslash Mindframe podcast. One of the benefits that you get is episodes that we call the sit downs, where every single uh, chapter, uh, three of us sit down and talk about the content and ask questions and and sort of ruminate about the content. So if you're liking it, uh, you'll be able to listen to it. And for these first three uh, chapters, uh, the they'll be available for everyone. So you will be able to listen to it for this episode for free, whether you're a patron or not. So what you're about to listen to is the prologue. It's the second sort of introduction to the book before we get to chapter one. And it is the story of a captain in a navy called the World Navy, which is a navy comprised of all nations of the world. And they have a very specific task at hand. And this particular ship is hauling back a chunk of rock and ice from the Oort cloud into a, a mining yard to break it down into its original components, um, but the trip doesn't quite go as it's planned, as you will see in listening to this chapter. So please enjoy the prologue and stick around after the episode, because I'll have a few more things to say and some other stuff to announce. So enjoy the chapter. Prologue, Captain Bill Campana, 2140. Claire, you are old enough to never again be lied to. You are a graduate now, and a citizen of the world, and a sailor. An adult. And the truth of the world unfolds for adults. The shape of your life is akin to a complex piece of origami. When it is first folded, the initial sculpture is childhood. Beautiful, filled with crisp lines and sharp angles, making the observer see a swan, or an elephant, or a crane. But maturity and the second law of thermodynamics slowly undoes that sculpture. For an adult faces death and disappointment and broken hearts from failed lovers, and one crease at a time, the origami illusion unravels. The clever folds become replaced with the reality of the thing, an overly crumpled piece of plain white paper that was too abused from the folds to be of any use or to be formed back into any other object. It is forever now a piece of paper. The object of fantasy is gone, and left behind is a useless, thin honesty that doesn't let you lie to yourself about the nature of reality any longer. Childhood is gone. Illusion is abolished. The world is laid bare, full of unpolished people and unfulfilled destiny. But that is not your concern. Because on your piece of paper, there will always be written orders. There are only the orders and the following of the orders. There is only the lariat and its closing and human destiny made manifest. Welcome to adulthood, Claire. Welcome to the World Navy. Captain Campana always replayed that brief speech over in his head when he was freshly conscious from another NDE engine burn. He could see the tables and their fine white linen and crystal dish service. He could see Claire, her short muscular frame and crisp naval haircut. She stood, saluting through the entire speech, as was custom. He smelled the gas from the Bunsen burners, 
the earthy spice of the tikka masala. It was all there, every moat, every flower, every pip on a uniform. He was promised by experts of every type that no dreaming was possible in the cove, told in fact to report any such event as apparent. But there was no dream, merely a memory. So Campana filed it away and said nothing. He didn't consider that to be a deviant behavior, surely not a memory. It was what his mind summoned when he was again made whole. As captain, Campana was the first of the crew awakened, and the first thing he saw when conscious was always the outside of the framing chamber. It was an elegant white box with handsomely rounded edges, the size of his old two-car garage at home. The decadence of two cars for one family eluded him, but it was his ancestral home in Tijuana for the past five generations. The chamber looked to be made of fine ceramic or rarefied plastic eggshell, Something about the chamber, the lines of it, the perfect whiteness, the way shadow played or refused to play on its surface was a reassurance. It calmed the psyche, made you feel that it was an art installation, a thing of aesthetic grace, that it needed to be. The chamber had one door, but nobody ever entered, and the way it sealed, you could never find the door once it was shut. When he'd see the chamber, the captain would think of the origami, the sculpture, the reality of the piece of paper because he thought about the framer who lived inside, what her life must be like, what she thought of her chimera life. Next, the two Marines awoke and recovered from the engine's harsh deceleration burn. They lay at the feet of their individual coves, but stood, uneasily, using their lances as a crutch. They took stock of themselves, saluted the captain, and upon the return salute, grabbed their sabers and instantly stood to defend the hallway that led to the chamber. They were young and gung-ho. They still thought life on a ship in the World Navy aligned with the propaganda. Their origami hadn't yet unraveled for them. Indeed, they still waited for a life of adventures, panoramic visual vistas like the nebulas captured by the old Hubble, sword fights against deviant attackers, seeing the infamously carnal life on the mining delta during shore leave near the sun. The reality, however, was alarmingly different, especially on a razor. Instead, the flat, bleached truth was a life rich with excruciatingly boring spans of time with views of black sky peppered with familiar, bland stars, the terrible possibility of actual sword fights with deviant attackers, and the unendurable pain of the NDE Cove for weeks at a time. And that last bit was where Captain Campana found himself, feeling for the first time in 23 days the remorseless pain finally abate as the ship's deceleration ended. The captain felt the pressure relent. He was back to one standard G, free from the strange liquid of the NDE cove. Though the chemical engineers assured him it wasn't actually a liquid, but some previously unknown state of matter, more akin to muscle or a sponge than water. The necrogenically dormant enclosures looked like a red beanbag set in a shallow nook in the metal wall. Rumor had it they were clear gelatinous color before the first jump, but after one, the blood and body parts were unable to be removed, hence the deep red color. Campana hated rumors, especially on his ship. He had a standing order that it was bullshit and not to be discussed. He also, of course, wondered if it was true. There was no way to slide into an NDE gel-like substance unless under the amazing pressure that came with the massive speed of the Razor-class engine, 
When the engine was engaged, the crew would simply lean up against the liquid. As the engines grew hotter, the Ryzen Gs would push them into the stuff. It would envelop them and quite simply keep them from dying by doing two amazing things. First, it somehow embraced the human body like a bladder, and it kept organs, muscle, tissue, bone, and brain from being liquefied by the enormous pressure of unnatural acceleration. This was the same concept as an atmospheric pilot's flight suit, an equalizing of pressure to reduce the effect of gravities. But at a microscopic level, enveloping the body from every point of contact, and even seeping into internal organs through the nose, mouth, ears, sweat glands, and anus to help from the inside. Second, it had amazing regenerative properties. In fact, your organs were ruptured and your bones were broken, but the gel inside the cove healed you as you were continuously shattered. It never let you die, the cove, working furiously to keep you just intact enough to stay alive, chasing each organ failure and healing it up just in time for the next one to need attention. Then, the NDE cove would rotate forward to aft, and the coves held the crew as the deceleration thrusters did the same thing in the opposite direction. When the high speeds one way or the other finally ceased, the enclosure would simply slough the human out. The crew would emerge perfectly dry, perfectly healthy, perfectly traumatized. Because even though the miracle of this technology kept the captain and his crew from being liquefied, it did nothing to end the pain. Every moment of the past 23 days were an eye crushed under a heavy boot, a section of skin sliced roughly by dull scissors, a hammer to an exposed bone, a hernia, a seizure, a chemical burn, and a migraine. Campana felt everything the speed and pressure did to him, even though the NDE kept it from mattering. Because he came out, broken, healed, rebroken, and rehealed a thousand times in a row, but healthy. The crew of a razor was tough, the toughest in the Navy. The pain would, and often did, kill people who weren't physically or mentally endurant enough to sustain it for endless days and weeks. Nobody on a razor crew called the NDE its actual name. Instead of necrogenically dormant enclosure, they renamed them near-death enclosures. And therefore, colloquially, they called the thrusters near-death engines. The razor crews were a proud and hardy lot, ones no deviant had ever dared to assault in the hundred years of their existence. Razor Marines were the toughest Earth had to offer. Hell, a mess cook on a razor had to be badass enough to survive the NDE, and that made him badass enough to be a threat to a deviant with a bone sword. A sailor who no longer feared pain as a deterrent was not someone to be trifled with in combat. And Campana was proud of every single one of his crew. He left the framing chambers hall and came to the officer's NDE hall, where his entire bridge crew was also being set free from their coves. At a piecemeal rate, they saluted him as their own pain relented and they remembered who and where they were. He returned all of the salutes with one grand thrust of his own arm and he quickly inspected each of them as they glided out of their own enclosures and stood. The NDE hall and the framing chamber hall were both directly behind the CIC. Thus, everyone paused as Campana approached the bridge doors so he could enter first. As he did, the computer signaled the three-note whistle through the entire ship, letting the crew know the captain was on the bridge. The view screen was as expected, and in space, as expected was the best thing a captain could imagine. A storm of snow, ice, and debris from the tail of Comet C-2098A3 Trujillo-Williams 
The comet was saddled to the nose of the ship, the Eleanor Gray, encased in a large-scale version of an NDE so it wouldn't disintegrate due to the pressures and speed of razor travel. Now, C-2098A3 Trujillo-Williams II had slipped out of its bladder and was already shedding itself, sublimating in the heat of the sun like a good comet should. Campana stood at his station, and one by one the seven officers in the CIC reported on their stations which had been neglected and automated now for the past 23 days of flight. C-2098A3 was from the Oort cloud. It had been mapped by a mineral expedition, and it was being used to bring raw ore, rock, metal, and ice to the dumpster, one of the Earth's largest space stations. Officially called Mining Station Delta, the dumpster existed as a raw materials processor for comets, rocks, and mining halls, also that the raw material could be used in the construction of the Lariat. The dumpster was still several days out from the Eleanor Gray's current position, and the crew was eager to dump this hall and get some shore leave. The dumpster was famous for its rowdy nightlife, though the rowdiest of it was denied to a naval crew, another marine fantasy dissolved. It was built to have three central hubs with sluice areas in between them. The Gray's crew, however, could only visit the naval portion. The civilian portion was equal in size to the naval and even held the grounds of the University of Seoul. The labor camp was also equal in size of the other two, but it held the dregs, criminals, and lowest birth of humanity. Many of them were good people trying to get upvoted and become citizens of WorldGov again, but many others were beyond rehabilitation. Mineral sluicing would be their life. The members of the labor camp were why naval and civvy hubs had such strict policies about who could take shore leave where. The dumpster wasn't luxurious. It was thin-walled, sparse place, but it had hotels where you could get your own room, and it was big enough to lay down on a twin bed instead of the cramped naval bunk, shower with actual water, jog on the concourse, and visit a myriad of bars, theaters, and nightclubs. Plus, the .75 gravity of the station made the post-nightclub conquest full of interesting, if not kinky, low-grav possibilities. The captain said, Vorman, send a ping to MS Delta on tight band. Protocol was to ping the dumpster with a one-way signal unique to the Eleanor Gray once they were back on the bridge. The communications chief did so. They typically didn't bother trying to talk live time with the dumpster due to the massive solar storms that normally played havoc with radio signals at these distances. But the ping let the naval crew on the mining station know the Gray was here safely. The ping came back, which meant the dumpster was still there and awaiting their haul. All was right on that front. Now ping the fleet, Campana ordered. There was a towing fleet that should rendezvous with them for the more subtle job of placing the comet into its proper sluice berth to be mined and separated. No response, Captain. Should I try the secondary fleet location? Affirmative, the captain said. Aye, sir. Trying secondary fleet location. Campana checked ship systems during the brief pause. Engines were green, life support was green, all crew had registered as being at stations, and alive. No response, second location, sir. Now Campana took note. Often the fleet would have to be somewhere other than the original coordinates. Things happened and there was no way to communicate while using the near-death engine. The amount of static spawned by whatever the hell the Razor's engine was made from killed any signal coming in. But at either the primary or secondary location, a fleet would leave a beacon, a shuttle, or a Basilisk-class vessel to report new orders and coordinates. Ping the third, Vorman, Campana said, and stood from his command chair, moving to read over Vorman's shoulder. He watched the ping fire out and find nothing in return. Campana looked at the view screen, but knew it was a futile gesture. The only thing the cameras were picking up was a battering cloud of ice and debris 
shed by C-2098A3 as the sun heated its outside. All right, Bridge, condition yellow, Campana said. The ship heard him perfectly well and issued a klaxon and changed the lighting level so everyone on ship knew that something was amiss. Tug station, cut the umbilical. Helm station, when umbilical is cut, change heading to 397 Mark 8. Let's get out of this thing's wash so we can look around. Vorman, put me live time with MS Delta. Eye sirs were abundant, and everyone did as they were told. There was a slight rumble from the flooring as the tug cut loose from the comet. The screen showed the white wash veer over to the left due to the course change, and finally Campana could see the blackness of space with a star field. But the star field did strange things. A few stars suddenly appeared where they weren't a moment ago, and then a few others vanished suddenly. This either meant a cosmic event so powerful that stars were being snuffed and birthed at precisely the proper moment, so that over eons of time and immeasurable distances they flickered on and off from Campana's perspective simultaneously, or more simply, there was something moving out there. And it was very close. Set alert condition red and call battle stations. This is not a drill. Set alert condition red and call battle stations, Campana said, rushing to his command chair. There is a deviant fleet here. It must have destroyed the tug fleet. Campana felt a rush of chemicals flood his system and prepare his body and mind for danger. Though he had been in over a dozen engagements with deviants throughout his career, in all his years as captain of the Eleanor Gray, he had seen no combat. The Razor-class ship was not an ideal target. Deviants tended to destroy vehicles with important passengers or board and commandeer vessels by drilling through the hulls with teams of pirates and have brutal fights with bone blade weapons to control key systems. But you couldn't punch the hull of a Razor. Razors were meant to withstand collisions with rocks and the constant pelting of hauling a comet. They didn't carry any weapons, but a Razor could outrun any ship in the solar system and nothing could get through their skin. This attack, therefore, must be about stealing the comet for the volatiles and minerals. Vorman brought up visuals of the Deviant Fleet. Several combat probes had launched automatically with the condition red, and they were now sending signals back in. The signals were mostly boring, hull size, engine heat, material density, but they all corresponded to a different ship in the catalog. The view screen showed a close-up of all of them. Three Basilisk Raiders, a Marin-class science vessel, a Paratap-class littoral combat ship meant for close-quarter fighting near stations or shipyards. That Paratap class is the Detroit, sir, Foreman said, confirming readings. The Detroit was taken by Deviants 18 months ago, and now it was here, an enemy vessel. Campana went to the academy with Detroit's captain, a fine woman and brilliant combat strategist named Odette. They had killed her taking the bridge, sliced her face with a bone blade as she was tied to the captain's chair. It was Deviant video propaganda and a hell of a way to die. Campana never finished watching the video. He knew well enough what a bone blade did to the human body moments after even one small cut. McClintock, bring us to a new heading, Campana belayed his own order as a final ship appeared on the view screen. The visuals were there, a long cone shape with a tapered flute at the rear of the ship where the engines must be. It was like nothing he'd ever seen before. The Gray's computer printed out the text at the bottom, ship class unknown. That wasn't possible. The only new ships came from the Ikunga station, and they were the efforts of decades of work and signals received by the messengers. The Deviants simply couldn't have had a new ship that Campana hadn't been briefed about. If they'd stolen a new top-secret class of ship, he would have gotten a report on that. The Cone ship tacked very quickly toward the Eleanor Gray, quicker than even the Basilisks, which were built for agility. Vorman, collect as many active scans as you can on that unknown vessel. All hands, prepare for NDE. Repeat, 
All hands, prepare for NDE, Campana ordered. He wasn't going to fight this fleet and fail. More importantly, he wasn't going to let intelligence about this new ship go unreported to Naval Command. Sir, we've just been pinged by the 6th Fleet. Based on location and trajectory of the ping, I would say it's en route and will be here within the hour. That time frame meant they were already heading here and knew that the tug fleet was attacked and destroyed. The damned solar storm was making distance reading and all communications save tight band pings impossible. Then again, that was probably why the deviants were attacking. That doesn't change your orders, Vorman. Keep gathering every mode of data you can on that vessel and report when the crew is all at NDE, Campana said. The bridge crew would be the last to get positioned over the NDE coves moments before the acceleration. The Sixth Fleet was a combat fleet under command of Admiral Nacheyev. Kampana's daughter was currently the chief of fleet for the Sixth, the right hand of Nacheyev, who directly coordinated all the ships to work as one. The Sixth would make short work of this small deviant pack. The Grey wasn't about to fight an unknown vessel on her own. Vorman reported that engineering was at their coves. The conical ship was closing on them, matching every move they made. The support crew and fire teams reported ready for the NDE. All that was left was the Marines, Science, and Bridge crew. The cone, which was still on screen, lit up. At first, Campana thought it had exploded. There was a flare of energy and radiation that the probes read, but it was inconsistent with an explosion. And moreover, the explosion effect was moving toward them rapidly, faster than the cone was moving. It was a weapon of some sort. Campana called for a course correction, but it was too late. The explosion got closer and didn't look like an explosion at all. It looked like a wave of sparkling pixie dust, a thousand new stars in the sky moving to swallow the gray. Campana punched up a visual of the framing chamber on his personal screen. The marines there were sheathing their lances and moving to their NDE coves. The sparkles from this strange weapon passed silently through the hull and entered the interior of the bridge, glowing orbs the size of a softball. He looked at the screen and saw that they passed through the inner hallways as well, but they were stopped by whatever the framing chamber was made from. The orbs bounced back from the white chamber walls and moved along with the others as if they were riding a current. His framer was safe. She was one of the three women in the solar system the captain loved. His wife, his daughter, and his framer. Funny how he just realized that. And it was in fact the second to the last realization Campano would ever have. The last was when he realized right there at the end that his daughter would be seeing this happen on her own view screen, and the death of her father would make one more fold in the origami of childhood come unraveled. She was a strong young woman. Vorman lit on fire as an orb passed through his torso. It was a rapid conflagration. There was no scream. It was not a bad death for a Navy man considering all the horrible ways outer space wanted to kill you. Monitors showed people burning all over the ship, doing their best to dodge and dance out of the way of the strange phenomenon. Campana manually engaged the NDE to run at full emergency burn regardless of the computer's warning of 100% casualties from crew not being in coves. Deviants didn't own a Razor class, and that meant they were limited to piracy runs or slow crawls to the Oort cloud to gather materials. Moreover, the data on that new ship was what mattered. They could not be allowed to capture the Eleanor Gray regardless of the cost to its crew. He engaged the engine burn. The ship shuddered, and he felt gravity doing something strange thanks to the building acceleration. Next, he saw the screen from engineering. Once the engine started to fire, the orbs swarmed in straight lines towards the drive core. The acceleration stalled. There was a flash on screen and a corresponding buckling of the ship as some part of the drive core blew. 
Containment held, and damage was minimized. He jumped to Vorman's station, suddenly realizing the air was thick with smoke, and he was the only member of the bridge crew who hadn't been taken by an orb or fled to their cove. He pushed the scanning data of this new cone ship into the computers of every escape shuttle, probe, satellite, and smart tether the ship had. He ordered the Gray to fire all of them simultaneously into the dead of space. A haze of space junk, hundreds of items fired from all over the ship. This deviant fleet could open fire at them, but they couldn't get them all. The data would make it through in all this debris. It had to. An orb glanced through the flesh of his arm. He hadn't been watching them anymore. At first it was icy cold, then there was an unbearable pressure. Or was it heat? Some type of pain he couldn't quite find a corollary to in all of his years of having the NDE tear his body asunder. Captain Campana would die knowing the Grey did not escape. But he would also die knowing the World Navy had trained his little girl to navigate a blank white sheet of paper after all the folds had come undone. His three girls would be alive. Captain Campana was burned to death by a flitting gossamer ball. The fire didn't start on his arm where the orb touched him and then spread. No, there was only fire everywhere and nothing else. He tried to scream, but he didn't know if that part of his body still worked. Perhaps the scream was merely in his soul and was only heard by God and the Eleanor Gray. It was not a bad death for a Navy man, as every crease in his paper came unfolded. Alas, poor Captain Campana, we hardly knew ye. Um, welcome back to the end of Mindframe. Um, just want to make some announcements and let you all know about some different things. If you're interested in other writings I have done, you can go uh, visit uh, mindframepodcast.com, our main website, and go to the web store. There you will find the re-release of my first novel, 181 Pine. It's a completely different science fiction world than this one, and it is the beginning of a trilogy that will be um, releasing uh, throughout the year. And also uh, the books of Zach Smith, who is the host of the sit-downs, um, are also available for purchase. That's at mindframepodcast.com. Um, again, we're a Podbelly original, and you can go to Podbelly to find uh, a whole host of other websites or websites, podcasts that you might be interested in, um, such as the Dark Multiverse of Stephen King and the My Age podcast. So go there, find the directory, and you'll definitely find something that tickles your fancy. One thing that uh, I definitely want to say is that we will be doing some giveaways uh, for my book, 181 Pine, whether it's copies of the book, signed copies of the book, or t-shirts. So you can always go to any of the Mindframe podcast social media where we will be rolling out uh, announcements of contests and various things like that. So to find our, us on social media, we've got sort of a, a different uh, medley of actual domains. So on Facebook... We are mindframepodcast.com. On Instagram, we are the Mindframe Podcast. Um, and on Twitter, they got to us first, so we are the Mindframe Pod only. And then if you're a Redditor, you can find us on Reddit at r slash Mindframe Podcast. So check us out on those, whichever of the social media uh, you are into. Um, like us, subscribe to us, keep an eye out. We'll be making announcements for contests for Mindframe, and we'll be making announcements for contests for 181 Pine as well. 
So I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, the next episode uh, will be a sit down where we talk about this prologue and give some thought into what was going on in the world building and the writing process and all sorts of things. Um, And as always, thanks for listening. And the Lariat is closing.